What an honor it is for me to be introducing Amber Dermont, who has now been my teacher twice, first in the summer of 2010, I think, and again this summer at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Amber is quite possibly the smartest workshop facilitator I've ever had, and I have been in workshops for about 10 years. I've been trying to do this for a long time. Her knowledge of all things literary is staggering. Not only has she read everything and does she remember everything she's read, she can, in the classroom, apply these things at the most precise moments when they will strike the story and the author in the ways that matter most. I have a wall at home uh, that I write on in my office because I'm a little bit of a crazy person. And I have notes from my last workshop with Amber um, and there are things that I look at to remind myself how to get back into my story. And Amber says that a story has intentions more intelligent, more compelling, more dynamic than an author could ever imagine. That a story should be about the most important moment in a narrator's life, and that it should reveal something about the human condition. Your narrator should take in the world in unsettling ways. And that if the writing is good, it will give the reader a physical reaction. Amber's a very close reader, too, and she'll call you out on all of your gimmicks. She said to me at the end of my workshop just this week, do we really need a dead baby in this story? Or should we just stay with the couple we've been with all along? And of course she was right. And in my defense, the baby was only on life support. I hadn't killed it off all the way. Um, but Amber is simply fun to be around, too. She's a force of energy. She's going to DJ the dance tonight, and I heard that she I heard um, that she has really great bunny ears that maybe if we all put pressure on her to wear again, she'll wear again tonight. And um, afterwards, you need to come up and look at her shoes. Uh, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, we are so lucky to have Amber Dermot at this festival. She is among the brightest of the contemporary bright lights as a teacher and a writer. And if you have not had the chance to read her yet, then you are in for a treat, because she is a discovery you will remember. Amber Dermont is the author of the short story collection, Damage Control, and the New York Times best-selling novel, The Starboard Sea, which was selected by the New York Times Book Review as one of the top 100 notable books in 2012. Amber is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and has her PhD in Literature and Creative Writing from the University of Houston. Her many awards include fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Breadloaf Writers' Conference, the Swanee Writers' Conference, and the Independent Film Project's Emerging Storytellers Program. Amber is currently an Associate Professor of English at Rice University in Houston. Please join me in welcoming her now. And Jen's like way taller than I am. I don't understand. Like I, I you know, I always hate to like uh, comment on um, women's beauty, especially when they're so smart, like so damn smart. But I like uh, had my students over um, to my my house, and they were all sort of I think just like amazed by it because it's really awesome and beautiful. And um, Jen was just like, you know, the statuesque magnificence, and she's suddenly like folded herself up like a swan and was sitting, you know, this sort of regal neck, just like on the prow of a ship. And I was like, did you ever model? <laughs> and you know, no, but she really should have because she could have made some serious coin. Okay, let's just have some, no, no, Mike, this is business. This is all part of the whole thing. This is, when you're a comedian, you have to learn how to do some Mike business. It's like, oh, da, 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 da. So I'm gonna play with this for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> and uh, that'll, whoa, see, isn't that funny? That's funny. Already we're learning shit, right? Um, da, 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 da. Yeah, this is definitely gonna not stay. It's, not it's fine, it's fine. Okay, um, come on in, come on in. I remember when I was here as a student, um, uh, Jory Graham gave this uh, reading and it was like everyone in Iowa City descended and she's just sort of incredible. And I, of course, was like, I'm just going to go sit next to her then husband. 
And what I did was I like sat next to her purse, which was filled with medications. It was fascinating. But she, Joy was like, there, there were no seats. And she was like, come down, come sit. And there were people just like sitting at her feet. Like on that, like it was the most incredible. I was like, that is a great gimmick right there. That is what you want to do when you want people to worship you. You bring them down literally to your feet. Um, I also have this tendency to tell stories I'm not supposed to, but whatever. Um, okay, so Jen is amazing and brilliant and one of the most extraordinary writers, and I'm so lucky I had to, the chance to, to, to read her stories, and um, the baby was going to be dead. Like, come on. Like, it was going to die. Um, I dressed up because I thought that I would be empowered by that, but now I realize that I, I actually underdressed. I should have put on even more. Um, and I, uh, I'm going to do that. No, I'm just going to get dressed to give this talk. And um, it's going to be fine. And I just want to say this is not what Jen mentioned. stand up here and prattle on for the hour and when I'm finished uh, we can all go and eat donuts together. Does that sound okay? Okay. So the title of this craft talk is The Joke is Always on Me. A writer walks into a bar again and other tales of repetition, juxtaposition, self-deprecation, and the understated power of stealing from stand-up comedy and deploying humor to reveal, heighten, and distract. Or is this craft talk just one long practical joke? Yes, but it's on me. My main disappointments regarding this title are that, one, it's not cumbersome enough, and two, I failed to name check Lenny Bruce, Sarah Silverman, or Wittgenstein. And three, there aren't three parentheticals. While the two parentheticals frame the title and begin to establish a pattern through repetition, they fail to provide the necessary comic release that a third parenthetical would ensure. As we all know from the rule of threes, it takes three mentions of anything to produce enough of an opportunity for a writer to subvert that pattern through variation. Three mentions allow for a potential callback, and within that callback, a necessary disruption. The rule of threes has its foundation in Aristotle's poetics, which, I am told, I've never actually read the damn thing, um, insists that all dramatic structure is built upon protasis, epitasis, and catastrophe, beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, in fact, there are actually three theories of humor. The superiority theory preferred by Descartes and Hobbes, which states that the cause of laughter is feelings of superiority. The relief theory first stated in 1709 by Lord Shaftesbury in his an essay on the freedom of wit and humor, which argues that humor is the release of nervous energy and the incongruity theory, supported by Immanuel Kant, Arthur Schopenhauer, and Soren Kierkegaard, which says that comedy is the perception of something incongruous, something that violates our mental patterns and expectations. Uh, That's just academic enough to make this piece qualify as an actual craft talk. <laughs> now, on to the dick jokes. <laughs> humor. What is it good for? The word humor derives from the Latin humor, meaning liquid, or more specifically, to be all wet, as opposed to comedy from the Greek, meaning the poet sings revelations, or satire also from the Latin meaning a dish filled with various fruits. I'm not kidding, that's, that's actually what it means. You can look that shit up. 
The sexiest and most seductive thing a person can do in life is to make someone else laugh. I've fallen in love over a punchline, a double entendre, a pratfall, an obscene balloon animal. However, comedy will never receive the credit and reward it deserves over drama because comedy belongs in the margins. Plato believed that in the ideal state, comedy should be legislated. We, sh we shall enjoin that such representations be left to slaves or hired aliens and that they receive no serious consideration whatsoever. No free person, whether woman or man, shall be found taking lessons in them. No composer of comedy, iambic, or lyric verse shall be permitted to hold any citizen up to laughter by word or gesture with passion or otherwise. Now, that's actually an amazing Plato imitation that you just heard. Sounds exactly like that. Comedy is dangerous because it promotes political discourse and comes from the most sacred, pained, and misunderstood chamber of our heart. One of my favorite characters in all of literature is the fool in King Lear, for no other character is as wise and caring, and no other character so easily captures the ear of the king. Comedy is deadly serious, and the rhetorical devices, rhythms, timing, and comedic techniques of the stand-up comedian can be and should be appropriated by all writers to establish voice, persona, narrative structure, and concision. If just one word is out of place, a joke falls apart. If just one word is out of place in a story, essay, or poem, a character is lost, a line is misunderstood, a metaphor fails to communicate. Comedians know how to put great pressure on language because every word has the potential to seduce or destroy. Some of my favorite contemporary stand-up comedians and the ones I draw narrative inspiration from include Hannibal Burris, whose joke about buying too much apple juice is really an extended metaphor for the irrational intolerance of interracial dating. Amy Schumer, whose courage to call out her own sexual appetites and insecurity regarding her appearance subvert the male gaze. The late Mitch Hedberg, whose heroin-dazed humor and funny voice are responsible for the best joke ever told about koala bears. And Patton Oswalt, who once shut down a heckler who is giving him grief over comparing George W. Bush to Hitler by saying, I didn't say Bush was just like Hitler. I mean, come on, Hitler was elected. <laughs> now, how's that for a surprising narrative reversal that reveals an actual truth? Whether you're a poet or a prose writer, I believe that humor has to do more than simply make a reader laugh. Humor must destabilize the reader and distract the reader long enough to reveal this necessary truth. Look at the bunny! <laughs> Look at the bunny! Pow! <laughs> we come to know an author through their sense of world creation, which is often a marriage between what the author finds to be too absurdly real and painful and how an author constructs a dream around the absurdity of this realism. Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and his obsession with light bulbs reveal the profound isolation and dehumanization of racism. Don DeLillo's Jack Gladney, his directorship of Hitler studies at the College on the Hill, and his inability to learn German reveals the intense hypocrisy and intellectual larceny of academia. Juno Diaz Jr. and his subversive insights into how to date a brown girl, black girl, white girl, or halfie pulls back the curtain on the impossibility of ever finding love in our postmodern era. And then there's Dorothy Parker's hilarious anti-suicide note slash poem called Resume. Resume. Razors pain you, rivers are damp, acids stain you, and drugs cause cramp. Guns aren't lawful, nooses give, gas smells awful, 
you might as well live. <laughs> like an Algonquin round table Andrew Dice Clay, the title of Dorothy Parker's resume suggests that personal failure regarding suicide has resigned the speaker to her terrestrial existence. Her qualifications for living are her attempts at dying. <laughs> it's often not what a writer finds to be funny that inspires their comedy. It's what they find to be horrifying, demoralizing, deeply saddening. For instance, I think it's funny that it's so easy to kill your wife. Now, obviously, I don't think it's funny in a funny haha kind of way. I think it's funny in a tear your heart and eyes out kind of way. Meaning, I don't think it's funny at all. But I use that concept in my short story, A Splendid Wife, to consider the high risk of marriage and pregnancy and the phenomenon of intimate femicide. In that story, dozens of women go missing after their doctor husbands take them for walks in a public park. This story operates on the principle that if one dead wife is tragic, 25 dead wives are hilarious. It's only through the hilarity that the question of how and why these women are murdered can be explored. The danger of discourse that Plato so feared. Here's another necessary truth, a secret most of your creative writing instructors this week will never reveal. Nearly all of them are failed stand-up comedians. <laughs> but you might offer, my instructors aren't funny. To which I reply, exactly. <laughs> Personally, I suffer from profound depression, or at least that's what all of the online do you suffer from profound depression quizzes, tell me. <laughs> hey, that's not funny. <laughs> I take these quizzes during downtime from watching videos of my favorite stand-up comedians. Humor has always had a medicinal effect on me. Ironically, one of the signs of depression is watching comedy videos online. <laughs> and that's like true, <laughs> it's like literally true. My favorite comedian is a British chap by the name of Stuart Lee. Has anyone ever heard of him? No? Well, that's good because I'm about to analyze and deconstruct his meta-comedic strategies in excruciating detail for the next 45 minutes. So, uh, some of you might think that's a bad idea, but it's exactly what I'm going to do and exactly what Stuart Lee would want. In fact, I've just stolen one of his comedic techniques, his tendency to announce to the audience his interest in discussing an unpopular, unfamiliar topic in minute detail, from obscure nature shows to obscure jazz musicians to even more obscure pornographic snack treats. There is such a thing. He approaches his audience with a delightful degree of antagonism. Consider this opening to one of his shows. Okay, what I'd like to talk about tonight is property, wealth, and poverty on both a national and a global level. But I am aware that this is supposed to be a comedy show, so I'm just going to open with 10 minutes of jokes about dogs. But as they proceed, you'll realize that actually, I've been talking about poverty all along. It's very clever. Um, what distinguishes Lee beyond his bar that's actually a terrible Stuart Lee imitation, by the way. What distinguishes Lee beyond his barbed wit and keen intelligence is his contempt for the conventions of stand-up comedy. Lee may be the smartest and purest artist working today. He has this incredible ability to dismantle the artistic process and call out artifice and hypocrisy without seeming self-righteous. His comedy doesn't excerpt easily into snippets or sound bites, and in order to fully appreciate him, I had to step up my intellectual game and study his prolific catalog of work. I soothed my insomnia, depression, by hunting down videos of his BBC Two show, Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle. It's fascinating to follow his development as an artist. 
when he was young, Stuart Lee was very beautiful. And it's, it's often really hard for us to take beautiful people, you know, uh, as, as funny. Because it's like, really? Like, you have that, too? <laughs> but he was very, very beautiful, and he looked like a handsome Morrissey. You know who Morrissey is? Thank God you knows somebody is, goddammit. His hard-edged humor was not taken seriously because of his good looks. Now, he's still handsome, but he looks more like a rumpled Morrissey. Now that he's older, his cynicism feels grounded in experience. He loathes the way most comedians rely on observational humor or cheap laughs about their annoying wives or asshole kids. He takes dead aim at easy jokes. In fact, in one of his routines, he follows up a dick joke with the following aside, disowning the joke entirely. He says, it's a good joke, that, but it's not like something I would do. Really, it's like a cheeky boy next door joke. And this is funny, because he's just done it. Oh, look, people leaving, bye. It's okay, I don't care. Everybody walk out, it's fine. I don't need you. I didn't come here to talk to you. <laughs> It's a good joke, but it's not like something I would do. He then goes on to mention a cheeky boy-next-door comedian, Lee Mack, who once called Stuart Lee, and I quote, a cultural bully from the Oxbridge Mafia who wants to appear morally superior but couldn't cut the mustard on a game show. To which Stuart Lee replied, cultural bully, honestly. And anyway, you don't cut mustard, you spread it. Idiot. <laughs> Stuart Lee is a genius at overturning the well-worn cliché. Consider his reversal of the following familiar phrase. My granddad said you should never judge a book by its cover. And it was for that reason he lost his job as chair of the British Book Cover Awards panel. <laughs> now, this reversal of a cliché is a technique often seen in the poet Jeffrey McDaniel's work, perhaps most brilliantly in his poem, Lineage, which includes the following lines. My parents wanted me to be well-rounded, so they threw dinner plates at each other until I curled up into a little ball. I've had the wind knocked out of me, but never the hurricane. In On the Orator, Cicero says that the most common kind of joke is that in which we expect one thing and another is said. Here, our own disappointed expectation makes us laugh. In classic comedy algorithms, you have the setup and then the punchline. But Jeffrey McDaniel uses the cliche to unexpectedly set up the reader for an unanticipated extended punchline. Similarly, you see this rewriting, appropriation, and transformation of cliché in Sabrina Ora Mark's poem, The Saddest Gown in the World. Sabrina's going to be teaching here, I think, this weekend and next week, and she's just an absolutely extraordinary writer. So this is her poem, The Saddest Gown in the World. I do not give any more, said Walter B., a fig about you. Are you sure, asked Beatrice. Absolutely, said Walter B. Not a fig, asked Beatrice. Not a fig, said Walter B. Promise, asked Beatrice. Promise, said Walter B. When do you suppose, asked Beatrice, you will give about me a fig again? Walter B. looked up at the sky. Probably not for many years, said Walter B. Oh, said Beatrice. Should I wait? Of course, said Walter B. You should wait. I'd be very happy, said Beatrice, if you joined me while I waited. Walter B. squeezed her hand. One day, said Walter B., I will make for you a sewing of all the figs I never gave about you. And one day, Walter B. would. He would sew all the figs together. It would not be easy, but he would do it. If he could promise Beatrice anything, he could promise her this. He would make for Beatrice a perfect sewing of all the figs he never gave about her. She could wear it, thought Walter B., like a gown, and everyone would applaud. 
Um, Sabrina has these characters who re, uh, repeat uh, throughout her two books. The first one's called The Babies, and The Babies is uh, about, in some way, all of the people who would have been born had the Holocaust not happened. That's uplifting, right? That's, that, that'll, that'll make you sad and cry for years. Um, but there's a moment in that book where she actually has the line, ha ha, Holocaust. And taking that ownership, reclaiming something, is really sort of extraordinary and one of the great things she's known for. So that poem ends in everyone would applaud. Now, Stuart Lee might simultaneously appreciate and take issue with Mark's declaration of applause. Stuart Lee even makes fun of the art of his own callbacks. Do you guys know what a callback is? Yes? All right, good, good. It's not, and it's not when like someone you're dating on Tinder like actually calls you back. Like you know that. Okay. Um, nobody calls anybody anymore. It's fine. Um, what Stuart Lee will do? He'll interrupt an audience's applause at one of his intricately set up callbacks. Now imagine that to interrupt the like. What is the one thing a comedian would want? Applause, connection, laughter. So he will actually interrupt by saying, don't clap. What are you clapping at? Clapping at your own ability to remember things? <laughs> He's not afraid to abuse or even condemn his audience. After a bit of physical comedy involving another dick joke and a collapsing microphone stand, Lee will accuse the audience and say, you like that, do you? You like that Charlie Chaplin shit? If you've enjoyed that, there's no more like that in this episode. Turn off now. Now imagine that, challenging your audience to turn off. He'll also dare the audience to enjoy his work by repeating the phrase, listen to the applause, cynics. Lee is not a bully or curmudgeon so much as a deconstructivist philosopher. He recognizes that like fiction writers, memoirists, or poets, most comedians are manipulative charlatans, working with a slender thread of tricks. Lee calls out all of his own tics and artifice. What I appreciate most about his work is his ability to question his own cleverness. He is merciless to everyone, but especially to himself. What's remarkable is that he doesn't allow himself to get away with anything. When he's condemning the audience for liking something he's done, he's really condemning himself. Now, how might this be useful to writers of poetry and prose? I would argue that the minute we feel like we want something from a reader, love, laughter, tears, we are well served to call out our own intentions and challenge our readers to defy our intentions. Such are the benefits of the metafictional or metapoetic moment. It's a way of taking responsibility and accountability for the act of writing. An example of this, if you think of Dennis Johnson's fuckhead turning to the reader at the end of car crash while hitchhiking and saying, and you, you ridiculous people, you expect me to help you. Now, throughout all of Stuart Lee's clever deconstruction and self-aware meta-comedy, there is tremendous vulnerability. There's a burning heart in Lee's work, whether he's contemplating a self-administered vasectomy with, remember, the rule of threes, a spatula, a tea strainer, or a garlic press. Calling himself out as a chaotic individual driven by pride, shame, and lust, who embodies an essential moral relativism, or describing himself as having been mistaken for the Serbian warlord Ratko Malik, if Ratko Malik had really let himself go. <laughs> Lee is quick to self-indict. In telling a joke about Boris Johnson, the mayor of London, pricing out lower-income workers, Lee says, pretty soon there will be no one to pour Boris Johnson's champagne. Then he pauses and adds, or mine for that matter. <laughs> I am aware that I am routinely referred to as a champagne socialist. I am not a champagne socialist. In the 1990s, I was an amphetamine communist, <laughs> which was good. It gave me a radical perspective on world events. Did help to keep the weight off as well. I've piled on the pounds since I've drifted toward the center ground. 
Now, I'm especially drawn to Stuart Lee for the way he tackles the subject of class privilege. A staunch liberal, Lee was a student at Oxford around the same time as the current Tory Prime Minister, David Cameron. In one of his routines, Lee tells a fantastic shaggy dog story about becoming friends with Cameron at Oxford and subsequently being exploited and mistreated by him. The story serves as a clever indictment of the hooray Henrys of British government. Cameron was a member of the Bullingdon Club, an elite social club at Oxford comprised entirely of teenage boy millionaires. Members of the Bullington Club wear these ridiculously expensive custom suits with velvet collars and sky blue bow ties and are known for their fragrant abuses of privilege. They'd go into a bar and they just like wreck it and then they'd like throw 200 pounds at the bartender and sort of walk out. Nothing would happen to them. Now, they'd had these epic bouts of public binge drinking, followed by world-class destruction of private property and illicit consumption of prostitutes. I personally first heard of the Bullers in Evelyn Waugh's novel Decline and Fall and Brideshead Revisited. Um, in fact, this club was a minor source of inspiration for the insouciant preppies in my novel, The Starboard Sea, hashtag product placement. <laughs> At the end of his routine, after detailing how the young David Cameron has misled and insulted him, Lee addresses the audience and says, now that story about David Cameron is not true. But I feel what it tells us about David Cameron is true. Now right there, Lee sums up the power of fiction to reach a deeper and more precise insight through art. But perhaps my favorite part of Stuart Lee's comedy and the one I have learned the most from is his expansive use of litany and exaggeration to swell an audience's laughter. He goes beyond the rule of threes and recognizes that the more one repeats, the more one insists upon repetition, the greater the payoff. In one routine in which he discusses the impact of pornography and the internet on the very young, he begins, today's young people are exposed to pornographic imagery everywhere, in advertising, in fashion, in music, and above all, in pornography where it is extremely prevalent. <laughs> now this is one of his techniques to state the obvious and to call out the stating of the obvious and the outrage surrounding the obvious. Now here's another example. There's oligarchs everywhere in London. It's like living in an oligarchy. <laughs> his routine about pornography culminates in the, his description of an act of graffiti vandalism that he used to witness in the 1980s and 1990s that he no longer sees apparent. Presumably because most youths who should be committing destructive acts of graffiti are too busy on the internet looking at pornography. When Stuart Lee used to drive to the Fringe Festival, do you guys know what the Fringe Festival is? Remember, it's not, you should all go to it sometime. He would drive from London to Edinburgh, Scotland on the A1, and he would go by the coast past a town called Shillbottle, spelled S-H-I-L-B-O-T-T-L-E. Can you keep that in your head? Shillbottle. Now, there were 10 signs for Shillbottle. In his routine, Lee marvels over how, with a single flick of the marker pen, young hooligans managed to change every one of those 10 signs to shit bottle. <laughs> shit bottle, four miles. Shit bottle, three miles. Shit bottle, two miles. Shit bottle, one mile. You are now entering shit bottle. <laughs> Welcome to shit bottle. Shit bottle Northumberland, twinned with bottle de mer France and Scheiser Flasche Germany. <laughs> now, Lee goes on to detail his admiration for this graffiti and the fact that British youths were engaged enough in their surroundings to vandalize them. <laughs> but he isn't actually talking about pornography or vandalism. He's analyzing his own comedic process. And this is him. You probably think that's immature, but I used to find it very funny 
I drive past the first shit bottle sign and think, that's funny. The second one, I'd be really laughing. The sh third shit bottle sign, I'd be in hysterics. By the fourth shit bottle sign, I can take it or leave it. The fifth shit bottle sign was irritating to me. The sixth, I was infuriated by the audacity of the people continuing with this idea. The seventh shit bottle sign, I started to find it funny again. <laughs> the eighth shit bottle sign, I was really laughing. By the ninth shit bottle sign, I was in hysterics. And by the tenth shit bottle sign, I had to pull into a rest stop. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to say that making that journey twice a year for 30 years has been a massive influence on my approach to stand-up comedy. <laughs> Now, Lee recognizes the power of repetition, how saying shit bottle once is funny, but saying it dozens of times is hysterical. We heard this exaggerated repetition in Sabrina Oramark's poem, The Saddest Gown in the World. It's a technique used by Lori Moore in her short story, Real Estate. In this story, a woman contends with her husband's infidelity through the expression of laughter. Instead of just writing, ha, 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 Moore goes on to fill over two pages with, ha, 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 ha,
The director, Alan Zweig, interviews a variety of stand-up comedians, all in an attempt to understand the particularities of Jewish humor. Funnily enough, all of the comics interviewed deny that such a thing exists. But they do acknowledge that humor relies on repetition and rhythm. And nearly all of the comics retell the same two jokes in order to establish a classic baseline for comic timing. So imagine that. It's like all these different people are interviewed separately and they all tell the same two jokes. Um, The first joke is about a young man who gets on a train only to have an old man sit down next to him and say, I am so thirsty. I am so thirsty. I am so thirsty. Now, much of comedy is built on complaint and attack. The young man is terrified that he's going to have to listen to this old man fetch for the entire train ride. So in order to put an end to his own misery, the young man gets up, goes to the water cooler, gets a paper cup filled with water, and hands it to the old man. The old man takes a sip of the water, then gulps the entire glass down. Now the young man feels a moment of victory. And then the old man smiles and says, I was so thirsty. I was so thirsty. I was so thirsty. Now his complaint is like a prayer, an incantation. It's also an act of defiance. You aren't going to shut me up with a glass of water. The other joke in the documentary that everyone loves involves a grandmother and a grandson. The two are all bundled up in their winter clothes and walking along the water when a wave comes and washes the godson out to sea. The grandmother looks up at the sky and says, God, what have you done? Why have you taken my grandson away from me? Please, if you bring him back, I will do anything you desire. I will lead my life according to your rules. I will give anything, make any sacrifice. Just please return my grandson to me. I beg of you. I will be your humble servant. And just then the sun comes out and a wave washes the grandson back into shore and deposits him at the grandmother's feet. And the grandmother looks down at her grandson and then back up at God and says, he had a hat. (laughs) Now, both jokes operate on the element of surprise and complaint. The delicate rhythm of the dialogue is very important, something that you hear in the famous Abbott and Costello sketch, Who's On First? Now, most of you are probably vaguely familiar with it, but I'll read a little bit of the actual routine. Costello. What's the guy's name on first base? Abbott. No. What is on second? Costello. I'm not asking you who's on second. Abbott. Who's on first? Costello. I don't know. Abbott. He's on third. We're not talking about him. Costello. Now, how did I get on third base? Abbott. Why? You mentioned his name. Costello. If I mentioned the third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? Abbott. No. Who's playing first? Costello, what's on first? Abbott, what's on second? Costello, I don't know! Abbott, he's on third! Costello, there I go, back on third again. And so on. And this, it actually goes on for like hours. Um, Now, what you'll notice is that this routine relies on the rule of threes, escalation, miscommunication, frustration, and complaint. Abbott and Costello realized that with dialogue, miscommunication is always more compelling, more revealing, and funnier than direct communication. And this is really crucial. This is one of the most key elements of writing dialogue. Um, You'll hear this uh, in an example from Dennis Johnson's Emergency. So I'm going to read a little section from this story. Um, And this is in the point of view of this character, Fuckhead. I was hanging out in the ER with fat, quivering nurse. One of the family service doctors that nobody liked came in looking for Georgie to wipe up after him. Where's Georgie, this guy asked. Georgie's in OR, nurse said. Again? No, nurse said. Still. Still? Doing what? Cleaning the floor. Again? No, nurse said. Again? Still. Now, Johnson's dialogue literally mimics Abbott and Costello's routine. 
Notice the repetition of still and again three times, how that pattern creates a satisfying rhythm. You'll hear it also in Ethan Kanan's short story, The Year of Getting to Know Us, when a husband and wife deal with the facts of the wife's infidelity. And this is the story. The wife starts speaking first, and she says, For some reason, I thought I couldn't hurt you. She had stopped crying. I looked out the window at the tree branches hung low with snow. It didn't seem I had to say anything. I don't know why I thought I couldn't hurt you, she said. Of course I can hurt you. I forgive you. Her back was still toward me. Outside, a few snowflakes drifted up in the air. Did I hurt you? Yes, you did. I saw you two in a restaurant. Where? At Denny's. No, she said. I mean, where did I hurt you? Now, this moment is simultaneously funny and heartbreaking. The miscommunication reinforces just how detached the husband is from both his wife and his own emotions. But Kanan uses the rhythm and comic timing of the who's on first routine to capture his narrator's emotional detachment. Um, now, do you guys know what Gulf Coast is? It's this literary journal, the University of Fiction, and I was a, a, a fiction editor there when I was a student. And then I teach at Rice University, and when I came back, they like, asked me if I would be on the board you know, and that sounds like a big deal. Like, would you like to be on the board? Of, you know. All it means is, like, would you like to donate $5,000 to the magazine for the rest of your life and go to these meetings at 9 o'clock in the morning and just basically hate yourself? So I, of course, said yes. Um, so recently, I was in a board meeting for the literary journal Gulf Coast. There are all these accomplished and sophisticated adults, plus myself, um, seated around a long conference table discussing the challenges of fundraising and corporate partnership when an older, humorless board member at the far side of the table, do you remember those far side comics? You probably don't, <laughs> because the cartoonist Gary Larson retired in 1995, and even though his book sold over 40 million copies, my guess is that none of you have actually seen one of his books, though if I showed you a picture of one of his cow cartoons, perhaps one set at a cow funeral with a cow delivering a eulogy with a caption that reads, Bessie was intolerant of narrow-mindedness, injustice, and unfortunately for her, lactose. <laughs> You would probably laugh and have a strange, unaccountable sense of nostalgia. Anyway, this older woman with crazy cat lady glasses, which is, granted, a cheap description, but the cheap laughs are often the best laughs. This woman who was seated on the other side of the room from me made a comment about the challenges of servicing clients. Now... Without missing a beat, and you can't miss a beat because humor is the sweet science of timing. Without missing a beat, see, I need to repeat that phrase because the rhythm of the joke is so important. And these parentheticals, which you can't see because I'm reading them, and if I was really cool and smart, I would simply be performing this, but I'm reading it. You can see me reading it, but you can't see the page, and so you don't know that these are parentheticals, but they are. So without missing a beat, after the board member said servicing clients, I said, and by servicing, you mean... Now, those seated next to me heard the implied dot, dot, dot. The humorless woman not only didn't hear the silent dot, 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 um, she wouldn't have understood it even if she had. She was bewildered and annoyed. She asked me to repeat myself like she was my teacher and I was a smart Alex student. Now, people were laughing, possibly laughing at her, and I simply repeated the line, knowing that explaining a joke is never funny and always fruitless. And then to make the crazy cat lady feel better, I followed up with a self-deprecating quip and said, the joke played really well on this side of the table. <laughs> now, this is an attempt to tell a story about how to tell a joke and how to use the telling of a joke to write a story. I believe that understanding the rhythm and beats of stand-up comedy is key to understanding narrative structure, concision, and dialogue. Um, I don't have an end for this talk. I don't have a topper. Uh, but I figured I'd tell you two different jokes by two very different men. Um, the first is by the legendary Richard Pryor. Um, it's a joke that I believe he only told once. And I know this story 
because I heard the late Robin Williams retell it to Mark Marin on his podcast, um, WTF. Pryor did a piece one night that was the most beautiful piece Robin Williams had ever seen him do. He did a piece about God coming back to earth to pick up his kid. God comes back and says, where's my boy? And they go, you want to tell him? (laughs) And they went, I don't know. No, get the Pope. He'll tell him. So, like, where's my son? And the Pope said, um, we killed him. What do you mean? said God. Well, we killed him. But he came back. And then he split. And we haven't seen him. And then Pryor looked around and went, and then God was like, I'm going to destroy you. And then he took a moment and went, all right, that's it. I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. I'm going to leave you love. And if you fuck that up, you're on your own. And then Richard Pryor walked off stage and you could see the entire audience go, what? (laughs) And he never did the routine again, but it was like the most strangely beautiful thing. And the audience was like, uh, that wasn't a character. That was just him. Now that's a pretty heavy way to finish (laughs) a talk on comedy. And so I decided to end on a joke by Mitch Hedberg that contains within itself a perfect narrative. It's a story about donuts. I bought a donut, and they gave me a receipt for the donut. I don't need a receipt for the donut. I'll give you the money, and you give me the donut. End of transaction. We don't need to bring ink and paper into this. I just can't imagine a scenario where I would have to prove that I bought a donut. Some skeptical friend Don't even act like I didn't get that donut. I got the documentation right here. (laughs) Oh, wait. It's at home. In the file. (laughs) Under D. For donut. I hope you file this craft talk under D for Dermont or donut. Thank you.